Hi, and welcome to the Robert J. Morgan Podcast. We have some exciting news we want to share with you, and that's that Rob's newest book, The Jordan River Rules, is finally here. It's been 20 years since The Red Sea Rules was published, and since then, it's helped hundreds of thousands of people through all kinds of crises. People write letters all the time to us about what they've been through. Now, he's written this book, The Jordan River Rules, to talk about how the swollen waters of the Jordan River were held back. This time, not to help the Israelites escape the enemy, but to open the path to the promised land, a path to victory. So maybe in your life, you're shifting gears. Maybe you're accelerating or slowing down. You wonder what's next. Our lives tend to move forward in different stages. So maybe you're figuring out post-pandemic life, or perhaps you've just graduated or had a baby or a change in career, or even you've lost a loved one. The message of the Jordan River Rules is that everything in your life so far has been God's preparation for stronger days ahead. Now it's time to move onward toward all the promises he has in store for you. You can search on Amazon for the Jordan River Rules to find the book and its accompanying study guide, which is meant for individual or group study. Or you can visit robertjmorgan.com. Use the code JRRPODCAST to save 10% off the book, the study guide, or the online study videos. Now here's your host, Robert J. Morgan. And welcome back. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. This is Robert Morgan continuing our study in the Book of Acts, a series of studies called Unstoppable on the Nature of the Growth of the Church in the Book of Acts and Throughout Christian History. Before we get into that, I want to tell you that this may maybe this is the most prolific year of my life. I'm not sure exactly how to evaluate it, but we have four books coming out this year in 2021. One is already out. It's called God Works Everything Together for Your Good. This is actually a uh, revision of an earlier book that was out a number of years ago, but it's based on Romans chapter 8, verse 28. We have a workbook that goes with it. We already have churches all over the nation using it for small group studies. And the same is true for the Jordan River Rules that came out about a month ago. This is the sequel to the Red Sea Rules. It's available in book form on Audible uh, or as a, a, a listening book, a recorded book. It's also available on Kindle. We have a study guide that goes with that as well and a set of video studies for small group cur uh, curriculum. Great is Thy Faithfulness is going to be out soon and it's available now for pre-order from Amazon and we need those pre-orders because of Amazon's algorithms. This is a beautiful or beautifully bound book, I should say. It's a gift book. It's got a ribbon in it, and it is 52 devotions. Very simple, uh, but I think practical devotions based upon 52 different verses in the Bible about God's faithfulness. And then later in the year, I'm very pleased to announce a book of daily devotions based on the classic hymns and songs of the faith. It's called A Song in My Heart, and it's being published by Baker Bookhouse, and more about that one later. But please check out these resources. I know that's a lot, but I believe that every one of them can be of benefit to you or to someone you love. God works everything together for your good. The Jordan River Rules, Great is Thy Faithfulness, and a song in my heart. Well, today we're coming 
to the latter part of chapter 18 of the book of Acts. This is the chapter in which Paul arrived in Corinth in a state of fear and trembling. He had been abused along the way during the second missionary journey. But God in advance had placed two disciples waiting for him there, Aquila and Priscilla, a husband and a wife team who knew the Lord and already were in Corinth. And so they took Paul in. They started working together as tent makers and also in proclaiming the gospel. And at some point, the Lord Jesus came to Paul in a vision in the night and said, Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for no one is going to attack you or harm you. I have many people in this city. And we looked at that for the last two episodes. We've looked at that wonderful message from Jesus to Paul. And so Paul stayed another year and a half, or he stayed there for a full year and a half and maybe a little bit longer. There was a legal challenge to his ministry, but Governor Gallio ruled in Paul's favor before the apostle even had to speak in his own defense. And so afterward, Paul settled down and he stayed, it says, for some time. Well, that brings us to where we are today. I want to look at the last half of Acts 18 and to the final days of Paul's ministry in this great city of Ephesus, at least for the time being. And the passage that I want to show you today, there are two spiritual habits, nearly forgotten now, but I want to learn to practice them more effectively. This passage has really spoken to me about it, and I want to recommend them to you. Now, neither of these spiritual habits is at the very heart of the passage we're going to study, but they both show up in the passage. And I am certain that these two habits represent two powerful ways to grow more powerful in our Christian life and influence, but fewer and fewer people are practicing them. So let's begin here with Acts 18, verse 18. It says that after the trial before Gallio, Paul stayed in Corinth for some time. Now, this is, by the way, when and where Paul wrote the books of First and Second Thessalonians. He got word while he was there in Corinth that the Thessalonians had certain questions, especially about the second coming. So it is right here in the middle of chapter 18 of Acts that Paul wrote these two epistles back to the Thessalonians. And then it says, Then he left the brothers and sisters and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. So Paul's time in Corinth came to an end, and he sailed for Syria. But it says, Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Sinchira because of a vow he had taken. Now, Sinchira was the eastern port for the city of Corinth, a little outside of Corinth, a few miles, and the remains of this ancient harbor are still visible. In Paul's day, it was a harbor town serving Corinth, and evidently a church had been started there, which probably, almost certainly, was an outgrowth of Paul's year-and-a-half ministry in Corinth. When Paul preached in a city like Corinth or Ephesus, people would take the message to the outlying villages and sometimes to cities elsewhere in the area, and churches would start there. And so a church had started in the city of Sinchira. And um, one of the people in this church we know to have been Phoebe, because in Romans 16, which Paul wrote a little bit later, he said, I commend to you our sister, sister Phoebe, a deacon 
and the church of Sincara. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you. For she has been a benefactor to many people, including me. And so get the picture now in your mind. Paul must have had some great farewells and hugs and tears and kisses. And finally, he made his way out of Corinth and he just went four or five miles down to this harbor town, and there he visited with the disciples in that little church, including Phoebe. So notice we have two very strong Christian women who are leaders in this passage, Priscilla and Phoebe. And here these two would have met each other. And, well, I just wish that I could have seen it. I'm sure that Paul was glad to get out of Corinth and back on the road. He loved being an itinerant evangelist, but he stopped here after leaving Corinth and he got a haircut. Now, how do you explain that? Many people believe that Paul had made a vow to God. And well, it says actually that it was a vow that he made, but what kind? If it was the form of a Nazarite vow, Paul would have abstained from alcohol during the duration of the vow and from cutting his hair and he would gone out of his way to avoid touching a dead body. And this is part of the Levitical law, uh, part of the law in the Torah. It comes from Numbers chapter 6. So if you want to, and if you have your Bibles with you, turn over to chapter 6 of Numbers and look at verse 6. Numbers chapter 6 and verse 6. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, If a man or woman wants to make a special vow, a vow of dedication to the Lord as a Nazarite, they must abstain from wine and other fermented drink, and must not drink vinegar made from wine or other fermented drink. They must not drink grape juice or eat grapes or raisins. In other words, they mustn't do anything that might be tainted with alcohol as a result of the fruit of the vine. And verse 4, as long as they remain under their Nazarite vow, they must not eat anything that comes from the grapevine, not even the seeds or skins. And during the entire period of their Nazarite vow, no razor may be used on their head. They must be holy until the period of their dedication to the Lord is over. They must let their hair grow long. And it goes on to say later in number six, they must not touch a dead body. So here is a possible scenario. As I said in an earlier podcast, Paul had entered Corinth in a state of psychological exhaustion. His second missionary journey was the most brutal with riots and floggings, beatings and stocks and physical and mental and political trauma. So he entered Corinth, as he later said, in much weakness and in fear and trembling. He was likely suffering, in my opinion, from what we call post-traumatic stress disorder. But Jesus came to him in a vision and said, Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack you or harm you, because I have many people in this city. So perhaps in response to that, Paul made a vow to God. We might say he rededicated himself to the Lord and renewed his zeal to serve God on the basis of those promises 
that he heard in that vision. He might have gone back to Numbers chapter 6 and taken a Nazarite vow for the duration of his time in Corinth. And the Nazarite vow had a number of special unique features to it just to help you recognize the seriousness of the vow. So he would abstain from alcohol and grape juice. He would not have eaten any grapes. He would have let his hair grow long and he would have avoided touching a corpse. It would have been a typical Jewish act of rededication. It would have been for a particular time period, not forever, and it would have expressed his renewed commitment to serve the Lord without let up. So having left Corinth now, the terms of his vow were completed. And so as soon as he got out of the city to the seaport, he got a haircut and perhaps he had a glass of wine, although the text doesn't say that. Now, if you read further, in number six, you'll find that those who take the Nazarite vow are to, after their hair cut, to keep their hair, the hair that was cut off, and to take it on to Jerusalem to the temple where it would be burned on the altar, signifying the sacredness of their vow and its successful completion. So Paul would have had his locks tucked away in a little pouch because he was getting ready to head to Jerusalem. So let's think about this. The first Pauline habit that we can experiment with is this. Deepen your Christian faith with vows, with temporary vows. Deepen your Christian faith with some temporary vows. Say, Lord, for a little bit of time, here's what I'm going to do to grow closer to you. When I was a student at Columbia International University, we had periodic prayer days when classes were suspended. We had extra time to devote to special Bible study. We had times of prayer with others. We maybe had a special chapel service. We had extra time for personal prayer. Sometimes we fasted for the day. We said, Lord, I'm going to take a temporary amount of time here a day, and I'm going to dedicate this day to you from sunup till sundown. And you know, after I left school, I kept that habit for many years, but I'm sorry to say it's fallen away in recent years. I need to resurrect it and to say, Lord, I promise to find a day in the next month or so and set it aside for special prayer, Bible study, rest, meditation, worship. Or you might say, Lord, I'm going to fast on this particular day. Now, fasting can be done any way you want. There is no biblical prescription to how we should fast. You can totally go without food for a day or for longer than that, drinking only water or juice. You can lower your calories for the day. You can say for the next three days, I'm going to live on a thousand calories a day. You can go for a week without lunch. You can cut something out of your diet. The whole purpose here is to practice a little bit of self-denial especially if you use that extra time for spiritual exercises. There's a current fad in dietary circles now called intermittent fasting. People everywhere are doing this for health reasons, but maybe we should also do it for spiritual reasons. Now, some people practice a form of the Nazarite vow every spring when they give up something for Lent every year, 40 days before Easter. I don't know if you've ever done that, but that's a very similar idea to the Nazarite vow. It is a temporary vow to God 
to do something or to not do something in order to become stronger in your faith. Or it could be something as simple as saying, Lord, I vow to you that I'm going to skip my $5 cup of coffee every day this week and give the money to missions. Or, Lord, I'm going to give up television in the evenings this week and listen to Bible study podcasts instead. Or, Lord, I promise that I'll keep a gratitude list every day in this coming month. Or, I promise to read my Bible every morning this week before breakfast. No Bible, no breakfast. Or, Lord, I commit myself to memorize the Lord's Prayer this month, whatever it takes. Temporary vows. Setting aside a little portion of your life or your day or your time for spiritual growth. So Paul did something like this. He made a temporary Nazarite vow in which he abstained from wine and let his hair grow, and he avoided touching a dead body. He did those things prescribed in Numbers chapter 6 to help signify and form a structure around the vow, and he sustained from those things and devoted himself with rededicated zeal to the Lord during his days in Corinth. And as soon as he left the city limits, he was ready for a haircut. So there is the principle. Here is just an idea that we can pick up from this, that we can use temporary vows that we think through, consider very carefully, and make before the Lord in order to have a period of time of accelerated Christian growth or ministry or ministerial activity. So at Sankrea, Paul, uh, having gotten his hair cut and, and met with a little church there, he booked passage on a boat across the Aegean Sea, west to east, to the great city of Ephesus. Now he is entering Ephesus. Now, during his ministry, Paul started many churches, but the two most prominent ones were directly across the Aegean Sea from one another, in Corinth, which was the doorway to Europe, and in Ephesus, which was the doorway to Asia. But on this particular occasion, Paul didn't want to get, um, he didn't want to devote very much time in Ephesus because he was wanting to get to Jerusalem. This was at the very end of his second missionary tour, and he would tackle the task of establishing a church in Ephesus during the third tour. But he did do a little bit of advance work there, and he left an advance team. So it says in verse 19, they arrived in Ephesus, they being Paul, Priscilla, and Aquila. They arrived at Ephesus where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined. But as he left, he promised, I will come back to you if it is God's will. It's always a good idea to learn that little phrase, four words, if it is God's will. And then he set sail from Ephesus when he landed at Caesarea upon the Israeli coast. He went down to Jerusalem, greeted the church there, and then he went on to Antioch. And this is the end of Paul's second missionary tour. It happens here in the middle of chapter 18. Now, why in the world the person who divided the New Testament into chapters didn't put a chapter division there to clearly delineate the end of Paul's second journey and then the beginning of his next one, I don't know. 
I think that if I had been dividing up the New Testaments into chapters, I clearly would have put a chapter division in this spot. But maybe the monk who divided up the chapters had, well, maybe he had ended his Nazarite vow and had one glass too many of the monastery wine. I don't know. But in my Bible, I've drawn a line between verses 22 and 23 so that I can clearly see when Paul began his third missionary journey, when he ended the second and he began his third. And he begins the third here in Acts chapter 18, verse 23. It says, after spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there and traveled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening the disciples. This is where a map of Paul's journeys is helpful. This was an overland route. He didn't go by sea this time. It's all by foot. Or maybe he had a mule or a horse. He traveled all across modern-day Turkey, east to west, a very long route. It would have taken him a long time. He was visiting churches along the route, which he had already established, especially in the region of Galatia. So, as I said, this would have been a very long trip. But now Luke cuts away. He takes us back to Ephesus and he shows us something that is happening there in Ephesus while Paul is making this long trek across modern-day Turkey. It says in verse 24, Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. Apollos. We are introduced to him now in the story of the book of Acts. This man arrived in Ephesus from Alexandria, Egypt. He was a native of Alexandria. So he was a North African Jew. Alexandria, you may look at the location of it on a map. It's there at the mouth of the Nile River in the Delta. Alexandria was a great center of Jewish learning and scholarship. It was the largest city on earth with the exception of Rome. Remember I said Antioch was the third largest city? So we have now references to Rome, Antioch, and Alexandria. Alexandria has probably no less than a million inhabitants at that particular time. It was full of palaces and public buildings. It was interlaced with parks and with recreational areas. It had wide boulevards. The royal palace was there where Julius Caesar first met Cleopatra. And this palace occupied a very wide section of the waterfront on the Mediterranean. And that's also where the famous lighthouse stood, which towered hundreds of feet into the air and it was one of the wonders of the ancient world. Alexandria was a university town, and it was here that the translation took place that rendered the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek. This is a version we call the Septuagint. The Septuagint was produced in the intertestamental time period between the end of the Old Testament and the birth of Christ. Jesus would have had access to the Septuagint. The New Testament writers studied it and quoted from it. They knew the Hebrew Bible. They probably knew the Aramaic Bible of the Jews of Palestine during the first century. And they knew their Greek Bible, which would have been the Septuagint. So this was a very strong and academically rigorous Jewish community that had developed in Alexandria. I mean, after all, it really isn't that far from Jerusalem, especially by sea. And so it became a magnet to the Jews of the diaspora. There were frequent clashes between the Jewish 
sectors of the city and the Gentile sectors of the city. But this was a great city in the world, a cosmopolitan city, a port city. The wheat and the abundance that flowed out of the Delta and the Cairo region, uh, the, the, the uh, Nile River Basin, it just went to all of the world. And uh, so here came from this city, Apollos, up to Ephesus. Why did he come? Well, most of us, I think, have underestimated the influence of the Baptist movement of the first century. Not today's Baptist movement, but the John the Baptist movement. Think about this. Since Malachi, there had not been an inspired prophet in Israel. That was a period of 400 years they had not heard directly from the Lord. And since the days of Elijah and Elisha, there had not been a prophet who was rough and unorthodox and fiery and a little bit on the wild side, someone who was just very strange but powerful. And the Jews were starving for a sensational figure who would represent the renewal of God's voice to them. So when suddenly John the Baptist appeared in the desert of Judea alongside the Jordan River, it was the most exciting thing that had happened religiously in centuries. And the word spread like wildfire all over the Jewish world because, remember, people were traveling very widely on the oceans then and because of the Roman roads. And so people came from Alexandria and from Europe and from Asia and from all of the Middle East to listen to this man. John the Baptist, who was sort of like George Whitfield and D.L. Moody and Billy Graham, all rolled into one. People thought he was Elijah himself that had come back from heaven to earth to prepare the way for the Messiah. Now think about this. In contrast, the actual earthly ministry of Jesus was much less sensational. Jesus was introduced by John the Baptist, but then he went up to Galilee, which was the rural mountainous area in the north of Israel, sparsely populated, and most of his three years of ministry was confined to a very small area, going from town to town in this rural area of Galilee, sometimes dealing with large crowds, but mainly dealing with his disciples. And during his lifetime, Jesus did not cause the international stir that had been produced by John the Baptist. And when John the Baptist was decapitated, then what was he? He was a martyr, and that strengthened his influence. So John the Baptist was very well known everywhere. The Baptist movement had taken the Jewish world by storm, and John's message had been one of repentance. He was saying, you need to turn from your sins. You need to turn back to God. And if you want to make your decision to do that public, then use the Jewish custom of submerging yourself in water, baptism, to repent your willingness to cleanse your life from whatever habits are defiling you. If you do that, you will hasten the coming of the Messiah. So the disciples of John took this message all over the Roman world, among Jews everywhere. There were John the Baptist movements. These Baptist disciples knew the message of repentance and the ensuing promise of a Messiah, but the full message of Jesus had not yet reached them. Paul and the other disciples, Peter, they were trying to get it out there, but their influence and message so far, the gospel, had not gone as far as the extent 
of the Baptist message. So let's go back to verse 24 with all of that in mind. This man from Alexandria, Apollos, was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures, that is, of the Old Testament. He was a brilliant Jewish rabbi with a powerful grasp on the law and on the poetical books and on the prophetic books of the Old Testament. He was like a modern-day Ezra. And he had apparently left Alexandria to be a John the Baptist evangelist. He might have heard John the Baptist. He was inflamed by John the Baptist. All of his learning in the Torah and in the writings and the prophets had been set on fire by John the Baptist's message of repentance. So Apollos wanted to preach this message to Jews everywhere as John had done in the Jordan Valley. He was a powerful voice for the message of repentance among the Jews. He was taking John's message abroad, prepare ye the way of the Lord, and he had taken that message and brought it now to Ephesus. It says in verse 25, he had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he only knew the baptism of John. He knew that John taught repentance and that John said the Messiah was coming, but he knew little more than that. He just knew that people needed to turn from their sins to hasten the coming of the Messiah. So he had come now to Ephesus apparently as a Baptist evangelist, that is to spread this message of repentance signaled by baptism to hasten the day of the coming of the Messiah. And he was a very eloquent and powerful speaker and so here he arrived in Ephesus not long after Paul had left town. But remember, Paul had left an advance team there, Priscilla and Aquila. So verse 26 says, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. And Priscilla and Aquila, when they heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So here we have the second New Testament habit that I want to ring that I want to recommend to you. Extend your Christian faith through hospitality. Deepen your Christian faith through vows and then extend your Christian faith through hospitality. And here the fact that Priscilla's name is first. It says when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. The fact that her name is first indicates that Priscilla zeroed in on Apollos. I can almost hear her after one of his great speeches or um, messages, sermons, uh, maybe in the synagogue or in the streets of the Jewish quarter. She would have come up to him and said, Mr. Apollos, what a great message you gave in the synagogue. What a way you have of stirring people and getting them to see their sinfulness and painting pictures about the coming Messiah. Oh my, your eloquence, your knowledge, your message in all my life. I have never heard anyone like you. Would you have dinner with my husband, Aquila, and me tonight? We'd like to learn more and we have something that we want to share with you too that I think you'll be interested in. And so that's what happened. He went over to their house for supper, and perhaps over a period of many days, this humble couple took this renowned scholar through the gospel story, showing him who Jesus was, 
why it was necessary for the Lord to come and die and be resurrected, how the Holy Spirit had come at Pentecost, and how the gospel was spreading throughout the entire world. What an extraordinary scene. It's not unrealistic to say that Apollos had one of the best minds in the New Testament. He was one of the best educated men in Judaism. And Priscilla, she was a tent maker. She was not an intellect. She was not a scholar. She didn't belong to the academy. She didn't have a classroom at the university. She was a simple woman, but she knew the gospel, and she had learned a lot about life. And she had just spent 18 months with the Apostle Paul, listening to him every day. And so this learned rabbi and zealous John the Baptist evangelist sat at her table night after night as she cleared away the dishes. And then she and Aquila told more adequately to Apollos everything he needed to know about the gospel, much of which they had learned from the Apostle Paul, who had just left town. Don't you just love it? And that's how Apollos became one of the first great Christian evangelists. It came about through the mentoring uh, school at the kitchen table of Priscilla and Aquila. So here's what I want to tell you. Don't, don't underestimate, never underestimate how you can mentor and disciple and teach people around your kitchen table or in your living room or on your back porch. You don't have to be a great scholar to speak into a scholar's life. You don't have to have a mansion in order to invite someone over or to meet them somewhere and to share with them more adequately the message. As you learn the Bible and as you grow in faith and as you remember the lessons God has taught you, as you keep a refreshing vitality to your Christian faith, you can edify and build up others and especially young people. Do you know I learned a great deal in the classrooms of the schools I attended, but I also have vivid memories of learning even deeper personal truths at the round kitchen table of a woman who lived in the mountains and would sometimes have us college kids come up to her house. One of the things I try to do on a regular basis is to entertain high school and college age kids in my home or around the swimming pool. I also try to mentor uh, some of the younger members of the staff at our church. I'll cook for them. I'll have Bible study with them. I'll answer questions. I'll teach them truths from Scripture. I'll tell them lessons from my own life. And it's among the favorite things that I do. It, I think that it helps, at least it helps me to have grandkids in high school and college because they are sometimes the one who are inviting their friends. And it also helps that I'm part of a church with a lot of young people. But when I look back at the influence of those who mentored me, it makes me long to do that for today's young people. Well, to finish the story in verse 27, when Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, that is, he wanted to go on to Corinth, the brothers and sisters encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. And when he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed. For he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the scriptures, that is from the Old Testament, that Jesus was the Messiah. So there you have the stories of Paul and Apollos and Corinth, along with Aquila and Priscilla. And the two lessons I'm taking away from this study for my own life are these. These are the two that I wanna to recommend to you. Let's deepen our Christian faith 
through vows, short-term vows. Let's give up things or embrace things for a short period of time that may help us accelerate in our Christian life and ministry. Deepen your Christian life through vows and extend your Christian faith through hospitality. When you do the first, you'll be better equipped to do the second. And with that, Paul's second missionary journey comes to an end. Next time, we'll see what happens when he launches his third journey in Acts chapter 19. In the meantime, remember to check out my three books. Um, well, four if you consider the one that came out earlier this year, God Works Everything for Good in Your Life. And then there's the Jordan River Rules, Great is Thy Faithfulness, which is available for pre-ordering now on Amazon. And finally, A Song in My Heart. Thanks so much for listening. And a special thanks goes to Clearly Media, who produced this podcast, and my host, Joshua Rowe, and my grandson, Elijah, who provided the music. And may the Lord be with you until we meet again.